welcome back to Subject to Cross. I am one of your hosts, Caroline Donato, and my co-host, Pete Kratza, is in Florida today, so it's just me. Welcome to Caroline's Corner. Oh no, that sounds terrible. Um, so for those of you who are joining for the first time in this episode, I think this is our fourth episode of 2020, um, but it's our third episode recorded in the year, and I think we're going in reverse order because what I want to talk about today is relevant in this week's news. I want to talk to you about Roger Stone's sentencing, his upcoming sentencing, what's going on with the United States government, and what that means. I'm not here to um, impose any political views. Even if I wanted to, I cannot. My firm will not endorse that. Um, But what I'm here to do is talk to you about it from a purely technical, criminal perspective. Um, And before I do that, for our new listeners, again, I'm Caroline Donato. I work at the law firm McElroy Harvey in Westchester, Pennsylvania. My partner, Peter Kratza, he too works at McElroy Harvey. And the mission of this podcast, just to reinforce it or to remind everybody, our listeners, um, who have been really great the past six months since we started this, the mission of our podcast is this. Criminal defense practitioners work to ensure a fair process and outcome for all individuals. Our state and federal constitutional rights encourage fairness. In this country, we all have the same rights. If the system fails for one, it fails for all. As criminal defense lawyers, we fight to make the system work and to make the system fair. That's why what we do do matters. Our mission with this podcast is to put you, the listeners, on the ground floor of that process so that you and we can help make it better. So that's what this podcast is all about. And today's episode is just me, Caroline, talking to you about Roger Stone. Um, This, what's going on with Roger Stone broke during the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday, February 11th. And I'm not sure that there's been a lot of detail as to why what happened matters. And here's generally what's out there. Generally, what's out there is Roger Stone is convicted by a federal jury trial in November in Washington, D.C., of three federal charges, obstruction of justice, tampering with a witness, and what was the third? Tampering with a witness. Oh, and false statements to Congress, of course. And in February, he is to be sentenced for those convictions. What happened this week was on Monday, February 10th, the U.S. attorneys who prosecuted his case in November filed what's called a sentencing memorandum. And what happens after a person pleads guilty or is convicted by jury trial or bench trial, then their case goes to a sentencing. In federal court, that sentence is up to the judge, the federal magistrate judge. And both parties file what's called a sentencing memorandum. The government, these four prosecutors or U.S. attorneys, filed their sentencing memorandum on Monday. And then on Tuesday, the same day as the New Hampshire primary, additional U.S. attorneys in their office, their supervisors, filed what's called a supplemental sentencing memorandum, essentially saying, hey, look, I know my office filed this yesterday asking for this specific this specific sentence within these guidelines, although those guidelines are technical, we think you should go more lenient, judge. And that's, that then provoked the initial prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, to resign or get off the case. Um, and that was startling. And I want to explain why that was so shocking. And I think to understand that is to understand the federal sentencing guidelines to understand what the guidelines require in this case, and then to bring it back to what actually happened this week. So first I want to explain the federal sentencing guidelines. The federal sentencing guidelines were created in the 80s by the United States Commission on Sentencing. Um, The guidelines 
essentially created an offense level for every fel- federal felony case or serious misdemeanor. There's an offense level. Think of it like a X and Y axis. It's a matrix almost. And the state courts have this too. But every, every charge has its offense level. And then every person has a criminal history category. And that category starts from one and increases based off of previous convictions. So that's what the Federal Sentencing Commission uh, prepared. And these guidelines initially in the 80s and thereabout for about 20 years were mandatory. So it would essentially say not only by legislation are there mandatory minimums with each conviction or certain convictions or statutory maximum sentences with certain convictions. But now you have these federal guidelines that federal judges you need to abide by. And that changed in about 2005, a United States Supreme Court case, U.S. v. Booker. And that case said that the guidelines are no longer mandatory, but they are advisory. So that was a good change. But nevertheless, the guidelines are what federal judges use um, as instructive to reach a certain sentence. And in a federal case, the guidelines act a certain way. Again, there's the offense level for each charge or conviction. And then there are enhancements outlined in the guidelines for certain activity. It could be aggravating activity that makes that level increase. It just depends on the aggravating behavior that would make that initial offense level get bigger. And with a bigger offense level, you have a greater guideline range. And the guideline range is a certain amount of months. And there are also what's called departures. So like there are enhancements to make each level greater, with certain mitigation or good behavior, there are departures. And that's also outlined specifically in the guidelines. So when you start at a certain level, say 14, like Mr. Stone did, and I'll talk to you about that, with an enhancement, he could have an eight-point enhancement, making 14 go to 22, or say a departure would have applied. He could go from 14 to 10, and his guideline range would decrease with the departure. Now, just like there's enhancements and departures actually codified in the guidelines, there's also what's called a variance. And a variance isn't something that's necessarily codified in the guidelines, but it's something that you can ask the judge to just vary from the, from the guideline range for whatever mitigation reason you want to put forth. And the way to talk about variances is through a certain statute. Um, it's Title 18 under the United States Crime Code, Section 3553A. And this is this is what courts, federal courts, federal prosecutors, and defense attorneys use as instructive to ask a court for a certain sentence, possibly a variance, um, something that's not specifically outlined already in the sentencing guidelines. So under Section 3553, there are factors to be considered in imposing a sentence. And in the federal court system, the sentence is supposed to be sufficient, but not greater than necessary to serve the purposes of sentencing. And the purposes of sentencing are retribution, deterrence, rehabilitation, incapacitation, generally. I'm not reading this verbatim. But in, in deciding what sentence for this particular person is sufficient but not greater than necessary to meet the purposes of sentencing, the court must consider certain factors. And those factors are as follows. The nature and circumstances of the offense and the history and characteristics of the defendant, the need for the sentence imposed to reflect the seriousness of the offense, to promote respect for the law, and to provide just punishment for the offense, to af- the need of the sentence imposed to afford adequate deterrence to criminal conduct, the need for the sentence imposed to protect the public from further crimes, so that's, that's incapacitation, 
and the need for the sentence imposed to provide the defendant with needed educational or vocational training, medical care, or other correctional treatment in the most effective manner, that's rehabilitation. The judge or the court must consider the kinds of sentences available. So that could be probation, that could be incarceration, uh, and, and the kinds of sentence and the sentencing range established for the criminal conduct and, and someone with that criminal history. So that is the broad background to the federal sentencing guidelines. It's instructive because what that means is we have these guidelines in place. They are advisory. There are enhancements. Offen- I'm sorry, let me, let me put it in order. There are offense levels enhancements and departures in those guidelines that make that offense level um, move up and down. There are categories pertaining to the offender's criminal past, which helps us find based off of the offense level and the criminal category, what the guideline range is. And that is a very technical analysis from what's already codified in the guidelines. And then you can depart from that Um, even more through a variance. And that's something outside of the guidelines, but consistent with Section 3553A. What sentence, despite these guidelines, because they're advisory, despite the enhancements and the departures, what sentence is sufficient but not greater than necessary to meet the purposes of sentencing? And that is why sentencing can be so complicated because You're trying to make sure that it's fair and it's proportionate to the offense, but also the offender. All right. So that is your, your, hopefully that was brief, Um, history, understanding, cursory understanding, not history. If Pete were here, he'd already be making fun of me for probably five things I've already said, but your cursory understanding as to the federal sentencing guidelines. So on February 10th, Monday. I'm recording this on the 13th. It's Thursday. And hopefully it goes out tomorrow. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. On February 10th, the government um, submitted its sentencing memorandum. And these are the initial four U.S. attorneys who resigned from the case or, or resigned from the office. They did different things, all four of them. And they outright state what Roger Stone was convicted of, obstructing a congressional investigation, that was count one, making numerous false statements to Congress, uh, that was counts two through six, and witness tampering, and that was count seven. So they say, as explained below, a sentence consistent with the guidelines would accurately reflect the seriousness of these crimes and promote respect for the law. The factual background, I think, is very instructive for this case to explain why the enhancements apply technically and why um, the initial U.S. attorneys asked for what they asked for. And also, keep in mind this, those U.S. attorneys spent however long they did in a federal jury trial, which is an excruciatingly tough experience to not only try a case, but try a federal case of a public official tied so closely to the president of the United States, who is your boss. So that's where they're coming from. And this was after years of an investigation. So this case started in 2016 when Roger Stone's longtime associate, Donald Trump, was running for president. And in the months leading up to the presidential election, Stone made efforts to obtain information from WikiLeaks that would help Trump and harm the campaign of Hillary Clinton. June 12, 2016, the head of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, publicly announced that WikiLeaks had information about Clinton that was pending publication Two days later, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, announced that it had been hacked by the Russians. I'm sure this is this very fond, exciting experience is coming back to all of you. And I'm not here to whiplash anybody from any perspective. On July 22nd, 
2016, so this is about a month later, WikiLeaks began releasing thousands of emails belonging to the DNC. And three days after that, Stone emailed his associate, Jerome Corsi. So Corsi is an important name. Stone emails Corsi with the subject line, quote, get to Assange. In the email, Stone wrote to Corsi at the Ecuadorian embassy in London and get the pending WikiLeaks emails they deal with foundation allegedly, unquote. And during this time, Assange was living at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Stone emails Corsi again and instructs him that a mutual associate who is living in London should see Assange. And he email and Corsi responds to Stone the next month. Word is friend in embassy plans two more dumps. One shortly after I'm back, second in October. I actually remember the second one in October. My now husband and I were in D.C. for my birthday. It happened the day after my birthday. I think the day after, yeah. Um, Second in October. This is, again, Corsi to Stone. Impact planned to be very damaging. Time to let more than Podesta be exposed as in bed with enemy if they are not ready to drop HRC, Hillary Clinton. So soon after he got Corsi's email, Stone made a series of public announcements that he was in contact with Assange, that he knew what information Assange was planning to release. And at least five occasions, Stone publicly stated that he had communicated with Assange through a middle person who Stone described as a back channel, a trusted mutual friend. So Stone's efforts in, in terms of communicating with Assange, Assange were not limited to Corsi alone. In September of 2016, so this is months after his communications with Corsi, Stone emailed a longtime associate, Randy Credico, with a request to pass on to Assange. So Corsi's important and Credico is important. Stone chose Credico for this request because Assange had been a guest on Credico's radio show on August 25th, 2016. In the email, Stone asked Credico to find out whether Assange would be releasing messages related to Clinton's handling of the matter in Libya when she was Secretary of State. In follow-up emails and text messages, Stone repeatedly urged Credico to pass the request to Assange. Credico told Stone he would, but also told Stone, Roger Stone, just remember, do not name me as your connection to Assange. You had one that you referred to. So what he's saying is, you're, Roger Stone, you're connecting with me in September 2016. You've already, already been publicly out there saying you have this middle person connection to Assange. I'm not that person, and don't forget it. That was Corsi. I mean, Credico doesn't know who it, who it was, but we know now it was Corsi. Credico just knows at the time, according to this memorandum and the evidence it seems that came out at trial, that whoever Roger Stone was talking to in the media, talking about in the media as his in-between between Stone and Assange was not Credico. And now Stone is asking Credico to be an in-between. So, um, but Friday, October 7th, WikiLeaks began releasing emails hacked from Podesta's email account. Again, that's Clinton's campaign chairman. And shortly after that, um, Bannon's personal spokesperson messaged Stone, Roger Stone, well done. So the offense conduct starts from January 2017 when the U.S. House of Representatives announced an investigation into allegations of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. So you'll remember, November comes about, President Trump is elected. Months later, the U.S. House of Representatives starts their investigation into Russian interference in our 2016 election. And they asked Roger Stone to testify before the House Intelligence Committee. Prior to Stone's testimony before the committee, Stone and Credico continued to discuss WikiLeaks. Remember, the two important people are Corsi and Credico. And Credico is who he was talking to after, after Stone's initial public announcements that he had an in-between to WikiLeaks, to Assange. 
On January 6, 2017, Credico emailed Stone, you may as well tell the truth, you had no back channel, and there's the guy you were, there's another guy you were talking to. It, it wasn't me um, when you first started communicating with Assange about the phone dumps. So when Stone eventually testified before the House Intelligence Committee, he told the committee five categories of lies. And this is counts two through six, I believe, in the indictment. So Stone's false statements about documents, they had a significant impact on the House Intelligence Committee. Had he testified truthfully and completely, they could have subpoenaed those documents. They were unable to, and therefore the House Intelligence Committee couldn't review them. So in total, between November 2017 and May 2018, Stone sent, oh, this is now talking about witness tampering. Stone starts to try to intimidate Credico and try to intimidate Credico from acknowledging the fact that he wasn't his initial intermediary um, and, and to testify falsely or to plead the fifth just to roadblock an investigation. So initially... In November 19th, 2017, so this is, I don't know, this is 10 months after the Russian probe started and the House Intelligence Committee started their investigation. And Stone, Credico wrote to Stone, my lawyer wants to see me today. Stone responded, quote, Stonewall it, plead the fifth, anything to save the plan, Richard Nixon, unquote. And the government cites that as a sentence that is a paraphrase of a well-known statement by then-President Richard Nixon to aides John Dean and John Mitchell during the Watergate investigation. And the next day, Credico's attorneys told the House Intelligence Committee that he would not participate in a voluntary interview. Now, from Credico's standpoint, that's, that's fine. He doesn't have to voluntarily participate um, and he does have a Fifth Amendment right. But the issue here is Roger Stone's, um, you know, intervention of what Credico does. In November of 2017, uh, two days later, after his Credico's lawyers told the House Intelligence Committee he would not be testifying, Credico told Stone that he would be getting a subpoena from the committee. So again, he's not voluntarily submitting to an interview, but now the committee is going to subpoena him. Stone responds, quote, that was the point at which your lawyer should have told them you would assert your Fifth Amendment rights if compelled to appear, and late, unquote. Later that day, Credico, and Credico was a witness against Stone, so that's how this information came out at trial. Credico asked Stone if he would be receiving a subpoena, and Stone told him that he was trying to find out, and Stone told Credico, if they know you will take the Fifth if subpoenaed, it makes it less likely Stone would be subpoenaed. So in total between November 2017 and May 2018, Stone sent Credico at least seven written communications urging him to plead the fifth before the committee. That is witness tampering. The only person who can lawfully, who's not already a subject or potential target of an investigation, who can lawfully talk to a witness about whether or not he exercises a Fifth Amendment right is his lawyers. Stone also used a movie reference that he knew Credico would understand to try to persuade Credico to falsely tell the committee that he did not remember the relevant um, events. So it's don't voluntarily testify, Credico, if you do plead the fifth, and if you need to testify, claim you don't remember. Um, He makes a... Stone writes a Frank... um, Pentangeli, I don't know how to say this name, and it's terrible because I should know Godfather movies. I'm Italian, I should know how to say Italian names, but I'm going to butcher this one. So he references a scene, Stone references a scene in a communication with Credico about the Godfather Part Two, where Pentangeli arrives at the Senate hearing to testify against Michael Corleone. Pentangeli lies and claims he doesn't know anything about Corleone's criminal activity. And the import of this message from Stone to Credico is unmistakable. He tells Credico to do a pentangeli, which Credico understood to mean that Credico should 
throw the investigators off, rebuff, or divert the committee by falsely claiming not to recall any of the conversations Credico had with Stone and the events that transpired. So while Stone is pressuring Credico to plead the fifth, not testify, or if he testifies to claim not to remember anything, he's also... um, keeping the real intermediary, Jerome Corsi, from July 2016, um, updated as to what's going on. He's telling his real intermediary, who he lied about, what's going on with Credico. So Stone emails Corsi, um, discussing Credico's potential testimony, and Corsi suggests to Stone not to make any further statements about Credico because it could raise new questions that will fuel new inquiries. Stone responds, Credico will take the fifth, but let's hold a day. So now Stone's conspiring with Corsi about what's going on with Credico. Between December 2017 and May 2018, Stone and Credico continued to communicate about the House, House Intelligence Committee investigation by email and text message. So these emails and text messages between Credico and Stone start to escalate. And this is important because it goes directly to the enhancements the government asks the the government is asking the court to consider when determining the advisory sentencing guidelines. Um, In December 1st, 2017, Credico emails Stone saying that he reinforcing the fact that he wasn't initially Stone's back channel, the back channel that the public statements were referencing earlier in August 2016. And um, Stone was, oh, and he told Stone that he had turned material over to the FBI, even though he hadn't. Stone responds, and I don't know if I'm going to get bleeped. Uh, Sierra, bleep me if you need to. Stone responds, quote, what the f*** is your problem? You can get away with asserting your Fifth Amendment rights if you don't want to talk about. And if you turned over anything to the FBI, you're a fool, unquote. And there's more back and forth. Stone tells Credico, quote, if you testify, you're a fool because of Trump. I can never get away with any Fifth Amendment rights, but you can. I guarantee you are the one who gets indicted for perjury if you're stupid enough to testify, Um, unquote. Credico urges Stone, tell them the truth. You never had a back channel. Stone writes back, you got nothing. Um, The next day, Stone again writes back to Credico, you are broke and out of work and your lawyers are morons. Start practicing your pen and jelly. And that's again the reference um, to The Godfather Part 2, where pen and jelly claims he doesn't know what's going on with Michael Corleone. So... It escalates even further at the end of December in 2017. Credico again messages Stone saying that he had documents to prove he was in Stone's back channel. Now Credico is trying to defend himself and Stone should be honest with the FBI. Stone responds, I'm not talking to the FBI and if you're smart, you won't either. Credico reinforces again the next month Stone. It wasn't me. Um, He didn't have any conversation with Assange until September 2016. Credico's, Credico doesn't know it's Corsi, but he, he knows it's not him. And, um, and he said to Stone, I have the initial email from 2016 from you in, in, at the end of August. That certainly clears me. And Stone responds to him, no one cares. By spring of 2018, Stone really takes it to another level to intimidate and influence Credico's statements and behavior. Um, he says to Credico, I'm going to take that dog away from you. Again, Sierra, you might have to bleep me. I'm going to start over. He says to Credico on April 9th, 2018, I'm going to take that dog away from you. Not a f***ing thing you can do about it either because you are a weak, broke piece of shit, unquote. And Credico testified at trial that when Credico received the message, he didn't think Stone was actually going to steal his dog but he was worried about other people getting ideas about it. And if Stone Stone posted a public message about going after Credico, he didn't know what the public could do. He didn't want to be harassed. And um, that same day, Stone writes to Credico, Sierra, again, you might have to bleep me. I don't know. Quote, I am so ready. Let's get it on. Prepare to die, sucker, 
unquote. So, um, as urged by Stone, Credico declined a voluntary interview before the House Intelligence Committee. He invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination in response to a subpoena, just as he was instructed by Stone. Um, He could have done that without Stone's instructions. He could have done that without Stone's, from a criminal defense perspective, intervention, and without then Stone's escalating threats by 2018. Credico could have asserted his fifth and did not have to voluntarily testify. But Stone shot himself in the foot by behaving this way. And as a result, the committee never heard testimony from Credico, never saw documents in Credico's possession that would have proved Stone lied to the committee, proved at the time. So it doesn't stop there. And I know I've been talking for a while, but but there's more. Eventually, Stone gets indicted. And there was some post-indictment conduct by Stone towards the judge who sat as the judge during his jury trial, and the judge who will sentence him. I believe it's the same judge. Um, So he made it very clear, Roger Stone made it very clear he did not care about these proceedings, his, his criminal proceedings. After the grand jury returned an indictment on charging Stone, Um, The federal court entered an order prohibiting Stone from making certain statements near the courthouse and didn't even impose any further restrictions on Stone's public statements about the case. So basically saying, Roger Stone, and this is well within reason, Roger Stone, don't make certain statements near the courthouse. Um, And the reason for that is you don't want to influence the jury pool. You don't want to have undue influence over the outcome of the trial. The trial should be fair and um, objective. So three days after the court imposed that order, I believe as a condition of his his bail, in February of 2019, Stone posts on Instagram a photo of the presiding judge in his case with a symbol that appeared to be crosshairs next to her head. And Stone included commentary alongside the image, including the term, quote, Obama-appointed judge, unquote, with the hashtag fix is in, referencing Hillary Clinton and Benghazi. And this post obviously received immediate and substantial public attention. Stone then files, and this is three days after the fact that, his, that he's been ordered by the court, you know, don't make, don't make posts about this. Uh, and then he posts this picture of his own judge. And after he gets public reaction to his public Instagram statement and horrible um, picture of of a a judge, then he files what's called a notice of apology. What's called a notice of apology? Then he files a notice of apology with the court. So you told me not to do this court. I did it to an extreme measure and I got exactly what I anticipated would happen publicly and I'm really sorry. Um, And he... While he filed this notice of apology to the court, he simultaneously publicly defended the post and suggested that the court was biased against him. That's wild. On February, so it doesn't stop there. This man likes to escalate his behavior. In February, and this is all instructive for the guidelines that were offered in this case initially by the government this past Monday. On February 21st, 2019, the federal court held a hearing on hit on Stone's initial Instagram post. And Stone testified that he didn't select the image, he didn't review it, but on cross-examination, Stone admitted that he posted the picture and he selected it from two or three images that were sent to him from a volunteer. Okay. During this testimony, Stone asked the court, the, the court that he put out there, on his own Instagram page, um, provoking public outrage one way or the other, and then apologized for and then defended, he asked this same court for a second chance and promised to treat the court and all its orders, this is Pete's favorite word, scrupulously. So the court discredited Stone's evolving and contradictory explanations, and he said that Stone's action, or the court said, not he, 
The, that Stone's actions pose a very real risk that others with extreme views and violent inclinations would be inflamed. And didn't uh, revoke Stone's bail, but instead modified the conditions of his release to prohibit public statements about the investigation or the case or any of the participants in the investigation or the case, period. So bail's not revoked. You can still go on the street despite your inflammatory behavior. Uh, So I'm just broadening the scope of what you cannot say to the public. That was the court's order. In my opinion, that was way too lenient. Um, and this this particular part is is rather interesting because this is post indictment conduct. We have we haven't even gone to trial yet. You have a hearing on a defendant. I mean, this is a criminal defense attorney's nightmare. Your defendant is putting public statements out there. These can obviously be used against you. And these public statements are about the court's potential bias against you because it was an Obama appointed judge. Um, so you're inflaming the world preemptively to think that the court's not going to be fair and you're already tainting a jury pool um, that that they won't be fair and that could cut both ways. Maybe they're not fair. Depends on their political views. I don't know. But what's really interesting about this is yesterday on February 12th, Roger Stone filed under seal a, requ- a request to this same judge to have a new trial because there was juror bias for his conviction. I mean, it's unbelievable. And he's, I mean, while he's before his trial tainting the jury pool publicly. So after, after that, um, you know, Stone's promise to obey the court's orders didn't last. He made numerous public statements, and this is before his trial, typically on Instagram and Facebook about the pending case and related matters. Um, Again, I have in my notes here, this is a defense attorney's nightmare. Stone posted statements about the substance of his own defense. Again, a defense attorney's nightmare. Um, He posted an article about his, his case, and in July 2019, months before the trial went forward, the court again had a hearing on this, this post-indictment public behavior, saying that Stone had again violated the February 21st order. So he twice violates these court orders. He's not held in contempt of a court order, but his bail conditions are modified not to revoke his bail, but instead to just put more restrictions on what he can and cannot say that he doesn't even comply with. And this happens again in July 2019. The court found that Stone had violated the February 21st order and found that Stone's obvious purpose was to gin up more public comment and controversy about the legitimacy of the Mueller investigation and the House investigation to get people to question the legitimacy of the prosecution. It was clear to the court that Roger Stone is trying to taint the people who would ultimately hear his case and impose an acquittal or conviction, which now is rather interesting because he's asking for a new trial saying that the jury was biased against him. So it looks like his efforts didn't didn't work. Um, and the court noted that it had twice given Stone the benefit of the doubt. Um, his explanations, Stone's explanations in these hearings required twisting facts, twisting the plain meaning of the order. It was clear he was unwilling to follow the court orders. And so, again, instead of revoking his bail, the court says that the conditions of his release are changed to add an additional condition to the existing order that Stone may not post or communicate on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook in any way. And he still finds a way around that. While his trial is going on in November 2019, he tells Alex Joan, an internet broadcaster, um, a whole statement about expecting to be convicted. Only a miracle can save him now. And Alex Jones is telling the world on the internet what Roger Stone said to him. So this is Roger Stone's way of avoiding um, being non-compliant with the court order, but also getting a public statement out there. He was relentless on that. 
And um, after that statement went out, Alex Jones read a message live on air directly from his cell phone stating that it was a text from one of Stone's lawyers saying, your reporting, your reporting almost got Roger taken into custody immediately upon the verdicts um, and asking him to be cautious. So Jones then reiterated that he spoke to Stone about the case while it was ongoing and Stone had instructed him to ask for his pardon. All right. I know that was a lot, but I think that, and that was a cursory history and a, it wasn't even a verbatim review of the government's memorandum, but that just goes to show all of the issues the government was working with for years leading into the trial, the trial itself, the conviction. And now that brings us to sentencing. Back to the guidelines calculation. So Stone's offense level is 29. And his criminal history category is one. So in the sentencing table, that yields a guideline range of 87 to 108 months. That's about seven plus years to nine years. That's the guideline range. So how do we get there? They grouped, the government grouped counts one through seven um, for purposes because they involved the same victim two or more acts or transactions connected by a common criminal objective or constituting part of a common plan or scheme. So obstruction of justice, the base offense level for that specific conviction is 14. And then we, so we start from 14 and under the sentencing table, If you start at offense level 14, you have a criminal history category, meaning you don't have a criminal history. If you have a category one, then your guidelines then are 15 to 21 months. So that's where we're starting from. And from 15 to 21 months, you can enhance it by enhancements codified in the guidelines, or you can depart by departures codified in the guidelines, or you can ask for a variance, which just jumps right outside of whatever's codified in the guidelines. So the government starts at 14. They add eight levels of an enhancement pursuant to the guidelines because the offense involved causing or threatening to cause physical injury to a person property damage in order or property damage in order to obstruct the administration of justice. So remember, Stone kept probing Credico not to testify, to plead the fifth, and then started threatening him about... Um, he's going to take his dog away from you. This is all in writing. Prepare to die, sucker. I mean, these are the threats the government is talking about. Um, that provides an eight-level enhancement under the guidelines. That's very technical. And that brings the offense level from a 14 to a 22. With a Category 1 at 22, you're looking at 41 to 51 months. Okay, so we go to 15 to tw- 21 months. With these threats, you jump it to 41 to 51 months. And the ability to carry out the threat or the likelihood of the threat doesn't matter. But again, Credico was concerned that public statements by Stone could incite public inflammatory reactions to him. Then the next enhancement is three levels because the offense resulted in a substantial interference with the administration of justice because of Stone's conduct. Then the House Intelligence Committee didn't get the information they needed or the documents they needed. And Had Stone not behaved that way and Credico just asserted his defense, he wouldn't be facing that enhancement. He wouldn't be facing this charge. But he did, by his own writing, that is is the result. And this is a very technical enhancement. Again, three levels are added because the offense resulted in substantial interference with the administration of justice. So now we go from 22, because we started at 14, eight levels for the threats, That brings us to 22, and then three levels for um, interfering with the administration of justice. That brings us to 25. So now your guidelines are at 57 to 71. Started at 15 to 21, and now we're at 57 to 71. But we don't stop there. Another two levels are added under the guidelines because the offense was otherwise extensive In scope, planning, or preparation, Stone engaged in a multi-year scheme involving false statements and sworn testimony, the concealment of important documentary evidence, 
further lies in a written submission to Congress and a relentless and elaborate campaign to silence Credico that involved flattering, crafting, forged documents, badgering, and threatening Credico's reputation, friend, life, and dog. So Stone's efforts were extensive, if not more extensive, than those of defendants who received, who usually receive this two-level enhancement. So now we go from 25 to 27. Remember, we started at 14, but because of Stone's conduct in the sentencing guidelines are these codified enhancements. Now we're at 27. That brings it from 15 to 21 is what we started with to 70 to 87 months. That's with an offense level of 27. But we don't stop there. There's another two-level enhancement. Two levels are added because Stone was willfully obstructing or impeding or attempted to obstruct or impede the administration of justice with respect to the prosecution of the instant offense of conviction. Uh, And this enhancement specifically addresses his post-indictment behavior, especially pertaining to that picture he posted of the judge. So that's another two-level enhancement that brings it from 27 to 29. And that's where they land. Um, The 29 offense level brings you to 87 to 108 months. It's a very technical calculation. It's codified in the sentencing guidelines, which of course, are now advisory. They are not mandatory. But it's not as if the U.S. government did anything um, shocking here. This is something that would have been obvious to any criminal defense attorney defending the case and preparing their sentencing memorandum. They would know that this is where the government is going at a minimum because of what's already in the sentencing guidelines. And that's what they submit. They say, and they go on further to say that Um, an offense level of 29, a guideline range of 87 to 108 months would be sufficient but not greater than furthering the purposes of sentencing. And that, again, is that language in Section 3553A that allows a court to, you know, not have to be mandatorily restricted to the guidelines, but they can, the court can produce Um, an outcome they think is sufficient but not greater than necessary under 3553. The government outlines why 3553 applies and is consistent with the advisory guidelines already in place. So that is what they submitted on Monday. It's pretty actually cut and dry from a criminal perspective. So what is so outrageous, and I'm sorry to keep you here so long, Hopefully this has been interesting to you. I find it fascinating, but hopefully it's also been interesting to the listeners. What happened the next day is the supervisor to those U.S. attorneys filed a supplemental memorandum, and I'm not going to go through it in painstaking detail. I will say it is written almost from a a defense perspective because as a defense attorney, when you have the guidelines in place and you know the government is going to ask for a sentence within the advisory guidelines. A defense attorney's job is to say, okay, but the advisory guidelines are a little too much. They are are greater than necessary to serve the purposes of sentencing. And of course, Your Honor, under 3553A, the purpose, the sentence should be sufficient, but not greater. These advisory guidelines are greater than necessary. That's usually what the defense is saying, and the defense uses mitigation, acceptance of responsibility, anything that's outside of the scope of any otherwise potential departure already in the guidelines. If there was a departure, the the government would have stated it as such um, in their sentencing memorandum. There wasn't, so what the defense would ask for is a variance. Okay, this is what the offense level is, this is what the guideline range is, but again, judge, These ranges are advisory. We're asking you to use 3553A, your discretion, to fashion a sentence that is outside the scope of those advisory guidelines and make one that is sufficient but not greater than necessary. The defense in this case said probation was sufficient and not greater than necessary. Um, You know, and that is their prerogative to take. Um, There were no mandatory minimums in play here. A mandatory minimum would have been in the actual statute, the conviction cited, and all that's in play are statutory maximums. So the supplemental 
memorandum asked for so the supplemental memorandum said you know what what my colleagues filed yesterday that's a very technical analysis of the sentencing guidelines but your honor of course as you know these sentencing guidelines are advisory so we think a term of incarceration is is appropriate but nowhere near what my colleagues asked for yesterday and that's shocking because it's the same office contradicting itself it varies substantially from the technical guidelines which are conceded. And the supervisors of that same office in the DOJ are making an argument that a defense attorney would otherwise make. It reads like a defense argument, um, although I would hope the defense argument, and in this case the defense argument, was much uh, more developed. This supplemental memorandum is about a three-page memorandum saying, yeah, I think under 3553, 87 to 108 months, even though technically the right guidelines, it's just too much. It just doesn't serve the purposes of sentencing. So that's why it's so shocking. It's it's the own its own office contradicting itself and asking for a variance uh, under 3553A, which is something that you just I don't know that this is precedented. Um, and I hope that understanding the federal sentencing guidelines and what happened in this case and the facts involved in Roger Stone's case was instructive to you, the listeners, to know why what happened this week was so shocking, especially Roger Stone's. I mean, I didn't know this when I was first looking at this the memoranda to talk about this case. I, I looked at my Twitter and I saw that he filed a motion under seal yesterday asking for a new trial because of juror bias. Well, Mr. Stone was out there post-indictment, pre-trial, putting out all of these public public statements or pictures, and that was supposed to suede any potential jury pool. So it's a mess. What the government asked for on Monday was consistent with the guidelines. What its own office did the day after was shocking. And I hope um, this podcast session gave you light or shed some light as to why it was such a shocking occurrence. All right. I've talked your ear off. Thank you so much for listening. Um, next time we're on air, Pete will be back with me. I want to sign off and say thank you to Nick Harshaw for our new music. He's a friend of the pod. You can find Nick's music on Spotify. I think he's also on SoundCloud. I want to thank Sierra Rain. Sierra is our editor. She's great. I want to thank Melissa Sampson. She's the director of marketing at McElroy Harvey. And of course, I want to thank McElroy Harvey for, you know, giving Pete and I the freedom to do this. It's something that's been really fun and our audience seems to enjoy. So we're going to keep on keeping on. See you next time. Mm-hmm.